Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Finding Pleasure in God, as we look to the Bible to Psalm 50 with a message entitled, When Your God is Too Small. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now. My dear colleague Phil Calloway tells an amusing story. He says that a man once approached him after he had spoken at an event, and that man had heard Phil for years on the radio, but he had never seen him in person. And he told Phil, you know, you're not what I expected, and I prefer my inner picture of you to the real you. Phil laughed, and, and this is amazing, but I've had the exact same experience while I was speaking at an event in Ontario. But that got me thinking about idolatry. Now, it's not idolatry for you to have an inner picture of me that I'm, let's say, six foot five and remarkably handsome. I mean, please carry right on with that image. Look, what I mean is this. Both John 1.18 and 1 John 4.12 say the very same thing. No one has ever seen God. Now, if you don't know it yet, the reason for that is that there is, in fact, nothing to see. John 4.24 says God is spirit. To be spirit is to be non-corporal. It means that he doesn't have a body as we do. His being, that is the being of God, is infinitely superior to our being. Now, how does one describe that? And the answer in the Bible is that the Bible uses images not to show us what God looks like, but rather to illustrate some of the attributes of God. And so when Psalm 63 calls God a strong tower, we're not to imagine that God looks like a watchtower on an ancient city. Consider all the images that are found in just one verse, Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Again, not to belabor the point or to state the obvious, but please notice that God is not to be thought of as an ancient ram's horn, alerting armies to take up battle formations or a, or a warrior shield or a rock. See, all of these images present us with God as a protector of his own people, not an image of what God looks like. No, God doesn't look like a very big man or like a very big city wall. He is spirit. And that gets us back to the question of idolatry. Idolatry is conceiving of God other than he is. It is to misrepresent him. And so when I meet someone who has listened to me but has never met me, and then that person says, you know, I, I thought you'd be taller. Now, just to be clear, I'm of average height. But when someone says that, it's not a matter of any great importance. That's because frequently they apply an image to me that's really better than the real thing. But with God, whenever we form a false image of who he is, we never paint a flattering picture of God. What we imagine, either in our mind or in the images we make with physical hands, I mean, that image is always so vastly inferior to who he really is, that the image in our minds is an insult and a demeaning of him who is altogether holy. Now, this demeaning image that we envisage in our minds is often the image that so many of us live with. Some of us are disappointed with God, and rightly so. What we imagine as God is very disappointing. See, I have found that some people can't even read their Bible and they're not paying attention because the false image of God remains firmly intact. Nothing changes. The idol remains. And so since during this week we're talking about finding God to be the treasure chest of holy joy, it shouldn't surprise any of us that delighting in God is confusing to idolaters. 
I mean, how could this substandard creation of their minds that they confusingly call God be the image of fascination and delight? Indeed, it can't. So for the next three days, I want us to consider one of my favorite psalms, and it's Psalm 50. The psalm is a psalm of Asaph, and Asaph, for our intents and purposes, was a worship leader in Israel. He was appointed by none other than King David himself. But rather than this psalm simply being a song of worship and praise, this psalm is a prophetic word. It's a prophetic word to a nation that not only doesn't prize God, but a nation that is idolatrous when it thinks about God. As we're going to see, many people in ancient Israel conceived of God as a needy God. Now, keep that in mind as we go on. See, I think it's possible to call this psalm, Psalm 50, a psalm about finding grace. This psalm is intended to turn things around. Instead of viewing God as needy, we are to see God as having no needs at all. Instead, it is not that God needs us. Rather, it's we who need God. And so a God who doesn't need us and finds no benefit in his relationship with us, nonetheless extends to us his grace. And that's what this psalm is all about. But as we read this psalm, you might wonder what this psalm with its themes of judgment and condemnation have to do with grace. The psalm begins by announcing a divine summons. And then as we move toward the end of the psalm, we hear the words of rebuke to people who don't reign in their tongue and those who slander others, and then a warning that God stands ready to tear the disobedient apart. I mean, all of that kind of language makes us think that the last thing that we're reading about in this psalm is about finding grace. And yet this psalm really is about grace. We'll have to explore with a great deal of patience how it is that even the threats of God are an act of grace. Stay tuned. So much to talk about. Now, grace is unmerited favor. It's a favor from God that we have not earned or deserved. The Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith. It means our salvation came about without anything that we have done to merit it. We did not contribute to our salvation. We, we added nothing to it. We, we did not bring something that we had done to it. We didn't earn it. We received it entirely because of the kindness or the grace of God. Now, that's not just true of our salvation. It's true of everything. All good gifts come from God, everything we have from the brain in our heads to the muscles in our arms to the food that we've produced, ultimately came from God. Even unbelievers who take no thought of God are recipients of grace, and it's a grace we call common grace. When they take a breath with the lungs that God has provided them and of the air that he has created for them, that's grace. My point will be that we need to see grace in everything. We're needy, and God is entirely without needs. And that's the difference between us and God. I think that John Donne has expressed this very well. He said, we are God's tenants here, and yet here, he, our landlord, pays our rent. Not yearly, not quarterly, but hourly and quarterly. Every minute, he renews his mercy. And it is this we fail to see. Instead, we're idolaters imagining that we contribute something to God, even if it's only a small thing. We are so prone to believe that something is owed us. You know, in truth, something is owed us. Judgment is owed us. That's why the threats are there in this psalm. I wonder how easy it is to remember that. Have you ever wondered that whenever we hear of a natural disaster, maybe it's an earthquake, a tsunami, an eruption of a volcano, we constantly hear people say, well, how can God allow this? And the implication is that God owes us safety and good health and, and comfort. 
it's not occurred to us that the disaster itself might be a divine warning. I mean, not that the people who suffer in the disaster are worse than the rest of us, but that the rest of us should be shocked that we too did not perish. But I've been going on and on without introducing the psalm, so let's start reading it. I'm reading Psalm 50, verses 1 to 6. The mighty one God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gathered to be my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Now then, Psalm 50 is a psalm that describes a drama. Or to put it another way, there is a storyline behind this psalm. The setting is a universal legal summons. I hope you know what a summons is. It's, it's a piece of paper that you get in which you are required to attend a court case. It's not an invitation. It's a requirement. And if you get a summons, you're going to be there. Now this summons described to us in verse 1 is delivered to the whole earth. Every human being who has ever been created is called upon to appear in God's court. But and I know what you're thinking, and that's the wrong idea. The earth is not on this occasion being summoned to the day of judgment. Instead, the earth is being summoned to come and witness a court case in which Israel will be placed on trial. And the world will listen as charges are brought against the chosen people. And then the world is called to carefully consider how this trial unfolds and what will be the final outcome. But why? Why would God want the earth to watch? And as this psalm unfolds, the answer is going to become very plain. What happens at this trial is a lesson to all. The earth is invited to witness just how God feels about idolatry and just how he judges those who think he is a needy God. See, this trial is an act of grace. If you want to avoid the similar trial in your own life, watch what happens in this one. If you repeat the same mistakes that Israel did, your outcome will be exactly like theirs. And so in our imaginations, think of the entire earth sitting in the viewing area as Israel is arraigned before the Mighty One. Have you heard Dr. John's latest series in the book of the Psalms, Finding Pleasure in God? Well, if you haven't, or if you'd like to hear it again, or you want to send it to a friend, we want to send Finding Pleasure in God on CD as our gift to you. We also want to include Dr. John's series on Psalm 42, To the King, accompanied by a limited edition illustration of Psalm 42 on a magnet for your kitchen, your office, or shop, all reminding you of God's faithfulness. These three ministry resources, all free as our gift. Finding Pleasure with God, To the King, and a limited edition Psalm 42 illustration on a magnet. To ask for your free gifts this month, or to offer a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I remember when I was in high school, I took a class on law in which we were required to sit in on and observe some local trials in the courthouse. And I found it fascinating. You know, for a while, I even toyed about the idea of becoming a lawyer. But something really interesting happened the first time I attended. 
A number of cases came before the judge, and as I was sitting there, I was stunned to find out that one of my classmates, a friend, was on trial for fleeing from the police in a speeding incident. He had a brand new Kawasaki 750, which was then the fastest production motorcycle on the road, and he had been trying to outrun the police. He actually managed it. He got away. And because we were undisciplined high school students, he became our instant hero. But this was a short-lived hero. That's because the police had recorded his license plate number, and he had suspected that. And so for a week or so, he was renting a room in a local hotel. But I guess that didn't work out very well because there he was being led into the courtroom, the very one that we were attending as a class assignment. He saw all of us looking at him, and he must have realized that he had become famous in his school. And he looked around, and I waved at him. I, I even said, hey, Russ. And to this day, I actually believe that Russ's sentence was more severe because of our antics. The judge was not only sentencing him, he was sending the rest of us a message. You know, I never actually got a chance to apologize to Russ for that. But on that day, I was both amused and highly interested, for this was one of us. And I wanted to find out what happens to one of us when we act this way. And the judge told us through a very stiff sentence. I remember thinking, you know, I'm never going to try that. And that, dear friends, is the drama of Psalm 50. Israel as a people is no better and no worse than the rest of us. What God does to them is a divine lesson book for the world. And so let's watch the trial of Psalm 50 unfold. First, have a look at the one who judges. He bears in this psalm three important titles. He's the mighty one. That title means at least two things. First, that he is superior to all, and secondly, that he has infinite strength. The second title is simply that he's God, which means for us who watch this trial that we should stand in awe and reverence him. And the third title is the name the Lord, or Yahweh which speaks of his unchangeable nature. What he does, he always does. Nothing changes. That's why we need to pay attention. And after describing the summons, we're told that he comes out of Zion, that he is out of Jerusalem. We're reminded that the God who exists has chosen Jerusalem as his dwelling place. See, I'm reminded of Psalm 48, verse 1. It simply says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all of the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Why is Jerusalem the joy of the earth? It's not that yet, but it will one day be exactly that. In Matthew 5, 34 and 35, Jesus says that heaven is the throne of God, the earth is his footstool, and that Jerusalem is his city, the city of the great king. In John chapter 4, when Jesus was speaking with the Samaritan woman, the woman says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. See, the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim, which was the place where Moses had instructed Israel to pronounce the blessings of God. And this woman was pointing out a theological struggle in her day, which was the site of the holy place. And by the way, that's not so insignificant of a question today. I mean, Hinduism, for example, has multiple holy sites, as does Buddhism. Islam reckons Mecca as the holiest place of all, and then second, Medina, and then third is Jerusalem. And Sikhism has Gurdwara with its golden temple. And as you know, holy places are jealously guarded, and a violation of them often results in widespread violence. So now, Jesus did tell the Samaritan woman that a time was coming when the location of the holy place would not be significant, but rather an hour is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. But even while he says that, 
He remarked that salvation is of the Jews, and Jesus even went so far as to tell the Samaritan woman that the Samaritans worshipped in error. He did affirm God's great and mighty works in Jerusalem. See, by summoning the whole earth to watch the trial against his people, God announces that he comes from Zion. Salvation is of the Jews. Theirs alone is the record of the Messiah. Grace came through the special revelation that began with Abraham, goes through Moses, finds its great vision through David, and ultimately leads to the Messiah. This is where grace is to be found. Now, before we we look more closely at verses 4 and 5, let's skip ahead to verse 6. See, having declared himself the God who reigns from Jerusalem, verse 6 then adds, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. We have here the contrast between what has been called special and what has been called general revelation. See, special revelation is God's revelation of himself in Scripture, in the Bible. God's general revelation is God's revelation of himself in nature, in the creation. Now, Paul makes this point very forcefully in Romans chapter 1. There he argues that the whole world is accountable to God because invisible attributes, and by that he means the eternal power and divine nature of God, have been made known to everyone through God's handiwork in nature. See, if we did not actively work to suppress the truth about God, everyone would already understand that God eternally exists and that we owe him an eternal debt of gratitude. And this is where the theme of grace comes in. As we will see as we study Psalm 50 further, the main problem is that Israel thought they were doing sacrifices in the temple for God. That is, they thought that Yahweh their God was hungry and they were feeding him through the sacrificial ritual and that was idolatry. But the nations who were summoned to the trial of Israel's sin will, even though they don't know the story of God's special work through his chosen people, still know that this is wrong after all. Nature itself teaches us how dependent we are on the Creator. The balance of nature, the abundance of nature, contrasted with the vulnerability of the human frame, all of that reminds us that we offer nature and our Creator nothing, but that He in gracious mercy has offered us all things. Paul said so when he was in Athens. He was reasoning with the, with the Greek intelligentsia standing on the Areopagus. There to a group of people who knew nothing about Abraham, Moses, and David, nor of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. There he says, as recorded in Acts 17, 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And that's what nature teaches us. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. See, in our day, this message is just as relevant as it was then. And consider the example of something that gets said almost daily in our culture. Save the planet, we say. Now, I have in this message no intention about discussing the issue of global warming. I mean, one way or the other. But understand this. If all that's said about man-made carbon contributing to the rise in global temperatures, if all that's true... It's not the planet that needs saving. It's us. Don't you see, if we all perish tomorrow, the planet would be fine. It is we, not the planet, that needs saving. But instead of saying our misdeeds have put our very existence into jeopardy, we would rather say we are saving the planet. There's something about the human race that simply will not stop believing that we are the saviors. See, we reject grace and would rather presuppose that God needs us. 
See, and this is true of both Israel in the Old Testament and the rest of the human race. See, whether God appeals to the evidence of special revelation or the evidence of creation itself, God is incensed. Just who do we think we are? And so according to verse 3, God comes and does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire and around him a tempest, meaning that all of creation is disturbed at his coming. Now to verse 4. He calls to the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. And that's the great court case, the summons to all the inhabitants of the earth, but also the ones in heaven, that is, even among the angelic hosts. God will proclaim that he is being slandered by his chosen people who have made him out to be a needy God. And God will not sit silently while this happens. And now that the summons has been issued and men and angels are in the audience, verse 5 says, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. To put that sentence in language we understand, bring the defendant into the courtroom. Bring Israel, the chosen people, to trial. And all of us breathlessly watch because what God says to them, he will also say to us. So that's why you're going to want to keep on listening to Psalm 50. This psalm has so much to say about how to be right with a good God and how to find him the object of our delight. Heavenly Father, I pray, continue to impress upon us the need to see you as you actually are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John, I'm amused, first of all, that you would use a Phil Calloway story, uh, but that's another thing altogether. But now I want to ask you about this whole idea, the image of God. You know, as a kid growing up, you had this image, and perhaps as you grow older, it's less and less. But is, it, uh, is having a false image of God in our minds a real bad thing? Yeah, it is a very bad thing because it is idolatry. Whether we actually build it with our hands or simply carry it as an idol in our own hearts, it's a bad thing. God wants us to think about him in the way that he actually is. That's why the Bible is God's self-disclosure, his self-revelation. So when God speaks about himself, he wants us to pay attention and listen to what he tells us about himself and hold that image in our hearts. So I think one of the things that we have to help children with is to help children not to carry an, you know, an image of a, you know, of a man who's sitting on a throne with a big white beard, but we're going to have to help them to come to terms with God as he actually is. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked, or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then Back to the Bible Canada's Israel Experience has been designed just for you. Well, we're heading to Israel in 2021, and we'd like to invite you to join Dr. John Neufeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests, and the Back to the Bible Canada team for this amazing trip from April 11th to the 19th, 2021 experiencing the sights, sounds, history, and the culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. This is a life-changing trip that you won't want to miss, and, and you have plenty of time to prepare. So to learn more and register, call us at 1-800-663-2425.
or visit us online at backtothebibletours.ca.